love that casts out every fear. I stand on every promise of your word. Father, we acknowledge this is actually quite a scary passage. And yet we want to be we want to be moved by love. We want to see the love of Christ. So please, Lord, equip me to teach this passage faithfully. And I pray, Lord, you give us all ears to hear and eyes to see the Lord Jesus as he really is. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'd like to begin with a thought experiment, if uh, you're up for this. Imagine you are back at school. It's your secondary school. And your teacher tells you he's just going to pop out the classroom for a moment. He, he sets you some work, and he says, I want you to get on with the work. I'm just, I'm just going to head out uh, for a few moments. Now, what do you do? What do you do? Are you the sort of person who would just diligently crack on with the work in silence? Or are you the sort of person who would muck around and start a game of um, waste paper bin cricket while they're out of the room? What, what do you do? Well, there's lots of variables, aren't there? Lots of different variables. It kind of depends on, on our own character. Some of us are sort of temperamentally quite straight-laced, law-abiding types, older sibling types, yeah? And others of us are complete bandits. So I wonder which, which one are you. It, it might uh, depend on, uh, on your character. But mainly, mainly it depends on the teacher in question, doesn't it? Because you know there are some teachers you can completely mess around there are some teachers who, uh, when they come back and interrupt your second innings, they're, they're not really going to get angry. They're just going to go, guys, and they might even join in the game with you. And, and for that sort of teacher, even the most law-abiding pupil would muck around. But there are other teachers, and you're thinking of one right now, aren't you? You're, you're, you're remembering that teacher, Mr. Scripps, it was for me. And you know you're never going to mess around in his class. Because it's just not worth it. Even the most complete bandit wouldn't muck around in his class. Well, today, the question we're asking is what will we do while we wait for Jesus to return? And again, the answer hangs not so much on our character, but rather on what we think of Jesus' character if you've been with us over the past few weeks, we joined Jesus on the road to Jerusalem. And all along the way, we've seen signs that he really is the long-promised son of man. The blind are being given their sight. Outcast sinners like Zacchaeus are being embraced and welcomed in. And flocks of excited crowds are lining the route, cheering Jesus, because they're thinking, yes, this is it. The kingdom has now come. Salvation and peace and security and now ours. Well, in our passage today, Jesus is concerned that the crowds have got the wrong end of the stick. They think he's heading to Jerusalem to boot out the Romans, and then and there to usher in an eternal kingdom, the one promised in the Scriptures. When actually what they don't see is that he's heading to Jerusalem to die, and so his kingdom will not come immediately. And that's our first point today, you'll see on your handouts. Jesus' kingdom will be delayed. Let down with me verse 11, if you would, in your Bibles. Verse 11, chapter 19, verse 11. It's page 1053, if you've shut your Bibles. It says this. 
While they were listening to this, Jesus went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, a man of noble birth went into a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called 10 of his servants and gave them 10 miners. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. Now Jesus' story here, it deliberately reflects a real-life front-page news item that day in Jericho when he told this story. When King Herod the Great died, King Herod the Great was the one who tried to kill all the babies in Bethlehem when Jesus was born. When he died... Because he was sort of the Roman puppet king, his title didn't naturally pass on to his son, Archelaus. Archelaus had his palace right here in Jericho, where Jesus was telling this story. And Archelaus had to go all the way to Rome, that's over a thousand miles away, in order to ask the emperor if he might be king. And having been appointed king by the emperor, Archelaus would then have to travel all the way back again before he might rule the kingdom. Well, in the same way, Jesus' kingdom is not going to come overnight. He too will have to go on a long journey. By virtue of his death and resurrection and ascension, the Father has appointed Jesus king. But we're only going to see that kingdom when he returns. If you like, there's going to be a long delay between his coronation as king and our full experience of his rule over us. So back to our story, given, given the length of the journey, it's kind of unsurprising, isn't it, that the nobleman appoints various servants to take over his business while he's away. So he gets ten of them together, he gives each of them the exact same amount of money. Each of them get a minor, which you'll see from your footnote is around uh, three months' wages. And he says, I want you to put it to work. I want you to make a profit for me while I'm away. Now, I know a number of you work in asset management, so I'm, I'm on thin ground here. But, but, but this will be familiar for you, to you, I'm sure, if you, if you know anything about asset management. This miner, this amount of money, it was not theirs to do what they wanted with. It is his money. So it's fair for the nobleman to expect some dividends upon his return. And in the very same way, The Lord Jesus has entrusted his business to us until he returns. It's not not just particularly gifted people, missionaries or church workers to whom he's given this job. No, notice each of them have been entrusted with the exact same amount. We each have the gospel message. And he demands, he asks, that we each put it to work. About 10 years ago, a visiting speaker came to the church where I was working. And I remember him. I think he was the head of a missionary organization or something like that. And this is how he ended his sermon. He said, you are all educated, wealthy, and connected. You are all sat under clear Bible teaching for a number of years. You have every single Christian book 
and resource at your fingertips and disposal. Now, putting that together, it means that each one of you are already better equipped to share the gospel of Jesus than 90% of full-time Christian ministers around the world. And there's a similar dramatic pause in the room as he let that point sink in. And then he sports it all by quoting accidentally from the Spider-Man film. With great power comes great responsibility. With our master away and, and soon to return, he expects that we will return dividends from what he has entrusted to us. This doesn't mean to say each one of us should go into full-time paid Christian work, although some of us should seriously think about that. But it does mean that each of us need to do something with the gospel. And I don't need to tell you this won't always be easy. In verse 14 of our story, it seems many don't want this nobleman to be appointed king over them. And again, this kind of, it's quite funny, this reflects what really happened to Archelaus. When Archelaus headed off to Rome, the Jews really hated him. And they sent a delegation of 50 people along with him to Rome to complain to the emperor, saying, really, we do not want this man to be king over us. Now, this is, this is the climate in which the nobleman's servants have been asked to do business. The king is not popular. And so neither will they be as they try and go about doing his work. So if Jesus' kingdom is going to be delayed, I guess the point is this. We need to set correct expectations. We should expect a wait. We should be um, very, very suspicious of any form of Christianity which brings all the hope of heaven, health, wealth, prosperity, full victory over sin, and then brings it into the present and says, you can have that now. Be very suspicious of that. Expect to wait. We should also expect to work. There are some forms of Christianity which are content to sort of compartmentalize our faith to Sunday morning Christianity. That's not, that's not what Jesus teaches. We should expect opposition. We should be very suspicious of any form of Christianity which promises us an easy, smooth, popular, and cost-free discipleship. If Jesus' kingdom is going to be delayed, we need to set correct expectations. There's going to be a wait, we're going to work, and we're going to be opposed. But nonetheless, nonetheless, I want to encourage you here this morning to throw yourselves wholeheartedly into this kingdom work. Because upon his return, here's our second point, Faithful servants will be rewarded. Faithful servants will be rewarded. Look down with me at verse 15 in your Bibles. Verse 15. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your miner has gained ten more. Well done. My good servant, his master replied, because you've been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your miner has earned five more. His master answered, 
you take charge of five cities. Well, with the nobleman now back in the kingdom, he's now king of the kingdom, he quickly gathers all his servants together to see what they've done with his investment. And the first guy comes to him, and he's made a whopping 1,000% profit for his master. And the second guy comes, and he has a massive 500% profit for his master. Now, those of you who work in asset management, that's pretty good, right? That's a really good investment. So no wonder the master is forthcoming with praise. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Well done. Now we need to tread carefully here. It would be very easy to misread this story and make it all about the things we need to do in order to gain God's approval. So if we kind of give ourselves wholeheartedly to kingdom work, only then will we will we be saved? No, that, that's, that's completely wrong. That's wrong. Remember that Jesus is telling this parable just after he welcomed a man called Zacchaeus. As we heard last week, he represents the very worst of society. He did nothing to merit Jesus' approval. And yet Zacchaeus received grace. Grace changed Zacchaeus. Christians, we, we don't work for God's approval. We work from it. You see, just like Zacchaeus, we've been invited into Jesus' home. We've been called his servants. And so we engage in kingdom business because we know the king. And the commendation which we'll receive on the last day, it's a bonus. The story is told of a, of a young soldier who uh, returned from the battlefront during World War II. Unfortunately, he'd been horrifically um, blinded by mustard gas, which he'd, uh, I think, uh, got hit on the very first day in the trenches. And when they returned back to Blighty, they put him in one of these specialised hospitals uh, for wounded veterans. And it was, you can imagine, it was a miserable place. It was full of, full of depressed, mutilated men. And being a young man, this, this blind man, he, he was really frustrated. He couldn't now serve king and country the way his friends and his brothers were on the front. Or, or he couldn't do anything. He felt useless. All he could do was just play piano. And so that's what he'd do. He'd spend each day just sitting at his stall at the piano in the ward, just tinkling away, trying to, trying to cheer up the place. And one day some visitors entered the ward and this guy was used to interruptions so he just played on, filling the space with this beautiful melody. And when the music stopped, a gentleman came up to him and, and put his hand on his shoulder and said, well done my friend, well done. And the blind man didn't, didn't recognise his voice. He turned around and said, who are you? I'm your king. Well done. Immediately the guy stood up and he saluted, tears rolling down his face. He'd been serving his king the only way he knew how. And his king saw it. Well done, my friend. Well done. I'm aware there are a number of people here this morning who give themselves fully to the work of the kingdom. In your own different ways, using the gifts God has given you, you're putting the gospel to work. So after long days at the office, you still go to your small group and to the prayer meeting. Uh, you risk your, your reputation and your friendships by, by trying to share your faith about Jesus. Instead of just crashing at the weekend, you spend time prepping a Bible class for children. 
you invite people from church into your homes and you treat them as though they're your family. A bit like that, that blind soldier. We might not always see the effect of our kingdom work while we're doing it. Ministry is often unseen, especially if it's church committee meetings. Often unseen. It is often opposed. And it often goes unthanked. But friends, your king sees. And on the day when you meet him, he'll put his hand on on your shoulder and say, well done. Well done. Good and faithful servant. So please, persevere. That's the point here. Persevere in what you're doing. Because like these servants to Jesus' story, a reward awaits you. It seems that we don't know the details, but in the new creation, we're going to be given responsibilities which accord with what we've done with the gospel we've been entrusted with. So if if we've been faithful with just a little, we'll be rewarded with much. So please persevere with gospel work. But what happens if we don't? What happens if gospel work doesn't really interest us? Well, here's our, here's our second point here. Sorry, third point. Unfaithful servants will be judged. Look at verse 20. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your miner. I've kept it laid away in, in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. I imagine that having seen the amazing returns the other two servants uh, brought forward, I I can imagine this third servant sort of shuffles forward sort of rather sheepishly uh, to the returning king. He brings no dividends, uh, no return, no nothing. Just the king's original miner wrapped up in a, in a manky handkerchief. Here's your miner. Of course, he's probably been um, mentally preparing his excuses in his head, hasn't he? And in the end, he decides to blame not himself, but his master. Well, you see, it's just that I think you're a bit scary. And I, I thought that if I lost your miner on a bad investment, then, then you'll be really angry with me. And I thought if I gained miners with your investment, then you'd just take them off me. So what's the point? What's, what's the point? Well, I, I figured, why take the risk? The third servant, he clearly doesn't know his king at all, does he? This characterization sounds nothing like the Jesus we've been following throughout Luke's gospel. The one who stops and gives sight to the blind. expendables the one who seeks and saves sinners this third servant doesn't know his master at all so no wonder he's so self-interested he's got no desire to make a profit for the king because he knows he's not going to be able to keep any of it well in the light of this verse 22 the king's judgment is absolutely fair look at verse 22 his master replied I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? 
Then he said to those standing by, take his miner away from him and give it to the one who has ten miners. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as to the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. Jesus' point is this. If you know the king, you will put his gospel to work. If you don't, you won't. The one who has that genuine knowledge, that genuine saving knowledge, will be rewarded. Whereas the one who doesn't will suffer loss. A couple of weeks ago, I was at a minister's conference, um, and sort of ministers all over the UK had had gathered, and it was a great, a great time. Thank you for sending me on it. And, and I can tell you that um, from conversations over lunch and over coffee, I can tell you with confidence the single biggest frustration of church pastors up and down the land is seeing people in their churches who profess to know Jesus, people who have this gospel of salvation. And yet they just wrap it up in a handkerchief and do nothing with it. So friends, it is incredibly tempting for me this morning to use this passage to start banging the pulpit. Stop being fringy Christians. Stop traveling every other Sunday. Commit to your small group. Come to the prayer meeting. Invite people to events. Help out in the children's work, etc., etc. Really tempting for me to preach that sort of sermon. But it would be a complete waste of everybody's time. Because if this third servant didn't listen to his king, then why on earth would you listen to me? The problem is not that we don't know what we're supposed to be doing, the problem is that we don't know the king. People often want to know what happens to this third servant. Does he remain in the king's household but not get any reward? Or is he sort of expelled out of the king's household where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth? Well, we're not not told here. But why do we want to know? Do we want to be like this guy who does as little as possible and yet stays in? Either way, I think verse 27 indicates it would be incredibly foolish to put the king's mercy to the test. Verse 27, But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. See, some people, they they reject Jesus with high-handed, outright rebellion. We do not want this man king over us. I want to be king of my own life. Some people do it openly. Whereas others of us, we reject him far more subtly through a faithless association with him hell is real hell is real so please do not put the king's mercy to the test the story is told of a a husband who was incredibly controlling of his wife so much so he gave her a list of rules and regulations which each day she would have to uh, follow. He insisted that she read them carefully each and every day so she didn't slip up. These included really pernickety things like do's and don'ts, um, uh, how exactly he wanted his breakfast prepared, how exactly the housework should be done. And day after day she would begrudgingly obey these rules, fearing her husband's disapproval. 
But after several long years, her husband died. And some time passed, and then the woman met another man, a man who dearly loved her. And soon they got married. And this husband, he did everything he could to love her, to cherish her, to encourage her, to support her. He continually showered her with tokens of appreciation and encouragement. And one day when she was cleaning the house, she, she found stuffed into the bottom of a drawer a little scrap of paper. It was, it was the list of rules and do's and don'ts that her first husband had given her. And, and reading through the list again, she realized she was already doing everything on that list for her new husband. But she did so not begrudgingly, out of fear, but devotedly out of love. She did it to please him, not out of fear of him. Friends, as I've been preparing this passage to preach, my prayer has been not that you would go and do what you don't want to do, begrudgingly putting the gospel to work out of guilt or fear or whatever. Now, my prayer is that your hearts would be so filled up with a love for your king that you actually desire to put this miner to work. See, our king has shown us such incredible love, hasn't he? He's taken us messed up, broken sinners. People like Zacchaeus, people like me and like you. And he has embraced us. He's given us a home. He's called us his servants. He's given us purpose. And he's, he's died for us. He's gone on a journey for us that we might be in his kingdom. See, friends, I want us to serve Christ not for approval, but from approval. So, friends, look again at Jesus. Look again at your king. And if you know him, you will put the gospel to work as you wait for his return. Let's pray. Love that casts out every fear. Father God, we thank you for the love the Lord Jesus Christ has shown to us in his dying for us and giving us a place and a purpose within his home. Help us to know our King. Help us to be filled with love and adoration for what he has done for us. Help us, Father, to put this good miner to work. And we all stand in Jesus' name.